there can be coarse language and adult concepts in our program. So please watch out for little ears that might be running around if you've got your podcast playing or pop on some headphones and that way no one can get offended but you. Remember behind the mortality is the huge morbidity of people uh, looking at figures last night, something like 16 to 20% of people who get coronavirus may need hospitalisation. Something like 6% uh, of them of those may need ventilation. And then, of course, some of those will die. Rights for Festivals proudly presents the Scone Literary Festival. With Pamela Cook and Kel Butler from the Rights for Women podcast. This session is COVID-19. What does it mean? Let me introduce the coronavirus uh, facilitator, Mr. David Dale, who is still very well. I heard this morning from my sister-in-law in in London, uh, who's been talking to some friends in Italy. In London, there's also a toilet paper shortage. uh, And in Venice, there's a shortage of wine. So (laughs) uh, there's plenty of... So if you happen to be able to get to Venice, I can tell you there's plenty of toilet paper. Um, So... Different nations have different priorities, and perhaps you've seen some of the uh, activities going on in, in Italy at the moment where they're doing sort of sing-alongs from their balconies and that kind of thing. It's very inspiring, actually. Um, so I'll, I'll tell you who the speakers are. So Alexander will be talking about the psychological implications, if you like, of, the, of this whole exercise. Uh, Kerry O'Brien will be talking about the political implications of it. How will some of the world's best-known politicians survive this whole exercise? Uh, never mind if we survive, what will happen to the politicians that we, that we love to hate? Um, is, it, is this going to work for them or against them? And Kerry, who's had, of course, many years of analysing politicians, will talk to us about that. Um, it's a crisis. I don't think anybody's disputing that. And, and Janie will talk to us about crisis management. She is, among her many talents, a, a crisis management expert. She's written a book on that subject. So, so she will tell us how this exercise is being managed in, around the world and, and are there better ways to do the crisis management. And then uh, for medical advice, we will talk to a local doctor who is not focused on horses. <laughs> this is actually a local GP who deals with human beings. And... Uh, Although I will ask him if it's possible for this virus to jump the barrier between human and horse, because this is a concern for Scone, I would, I would imagine. Um, so, and he will also, he's happy to answer your questions, but please don't come up and show him your rash. Okay. Uh, it's just, it's going to be focused on, on coronavirus symptoms, what he's finding in his practice. Uh, and I, I gather we actually have a couple of other local doctors here, and I, I hope that they would, would join in if, if they would like to in talking about what their patients are saying to them and what advice they are giving to their patients. So we've pretty much got everything covered here. Uh, and, you know, if you, if you want the takeaway to be medical advice, you've got that. Psychological advice, you've got that. Political advice, you've got that. And then I thought since this is a literary festival, I'd really better talk about literature slightly uh, in, this, in this context. So I, I went back and did a little research and we discovered that plagues were a big deal in ancient Greece. In the plays of ancient Greece, the, the plague is often mentioned. And in fact, Sophocles wrote the play Oedipus Tyrannos, 
And the title character is struggling to figure out what is the cause of the plague that is striking the city. And the answer is bad leadership. <laughs> His bad leadership. He was, amazingly enough, a narcissistic leader. And uh, he uh, was cursed by the gods with the plague. And that's a theme that runs through ancient Greek uh, poetry and, and, and plays, the notion that the gods use plague, the plague to punish often democratically elected leaders, because ancient Greece, of course, was the pioneer of that, but they're often plagued, for, uh, plagued by their own incompetence. But, of course, we can come a little bit more recently to the great year of the plague, 1666. And I'm a big fan of Samuel Pepys. I put up, every morning I put up a, an entry from Samuel Pepys' diary on Facebook um, for, for that day. So I've read a lot about the plague from Samuel Pepys, who was around, of course, in 1966. And he talks about nobody but poor wretches in the streets, no boats upon the river, fires burning in the street to cleanse the air. So that was their solution to the plague at the time. If you set a fire in the street, maybe that'll do something. Um, and then, uh, little noise is heard day or night, but the tolling of bells to accompany the burial of plague, plague victims. So you can imagine, there they were in, in 1666, self-isolating in their houses, and all they're hearing from the streets are the, the tolling of the bells for the, for the deaths of, of others. And uh, he's uh, at one point saying that he was offered to buy a new periwig at a bargain price. And then he thought, uh-oh, not going to do that. That wouldn't be cut off the heads of people dead of the plague. So you don't want to be wearing those kind of wigs. And he's also talking about chewing tobacco as a solution to, uh, to keep the disease at bay. And then, of course, there's Daniel Defoe, who wrote in 1722 wrote a novel called A Journal of the Plague Year. So he was actually only five years old at the time of the plague in 1666, but his uncle kept a diary. And so Defoe's book is based upon his uncle's diary. So it's, it could be said to be the first novel uh, because it's a kind of a semi-fictionalised account of his, father's, uh, his uncle's experiences in London during the plague. But he, he writes... Um, he says, a near view of death would soon reconcile men of good principles one to another. So that he, he sees the plague as obviously a terrible thing, but also potentially a, a healing agent for, for people's hatreds between themselves. Uh, and he says that at the moment, uh, chiefly owing to our easy situation in life and our putting these things far from us, that our breaches are fomented, ill blood continued, prejudices breach of charity and of Christian union are so much kept and so far carried on among us. And given that we're living in such a polarised society, I think that's not a bad description of where we are now, that, that sense of hatreds forming between people uh, because, he says, because we have such an easy situation in life until the plague came along. And he says, a plague year would reconcile all these differences. A close conversing with death, or the diseases that threaten death, would skim off the gall from our tempers, remove the animosities among us, and bring us to see with differing eyes than those which we looked on things before. Um, and and I'm, I'm thinking that's very prescient. There's a kind of, I guess, a Darwinian sense of, among some people. I, 
I noticed that uh, some millennials are referring to coronavirus as the boomer remover. Um, and that's kind of where we are now in terms of divisiveness uh, in the society. Um, now, another person, another person who thought that the plague year was actually a, a good thing, ultimately, was Isaac Newton. Now, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, when I was in, in Britain, I went to Isaac Newton's farm. And this is the farm in northern England where he self-isolated for a year during the plague. He was at Cambridge University. He's 23 years old. And he uh, had to remove himself from the university along with the other students. And he went to this farm. Um, and so I was being taken through the farmhouse. And, of course, all the time I'm looking out the window at the garden. And the guide is saying, he's trying to get me to pay attention. And, and uh, she says, what, what are you looking for? And I say, I'm looking for the apple tree. And, and she says, well, it's over there. And she says, but, you know, keep paying attention here. And we eventually get up to his bedroom. And you get a very good view of the apple tree, in fact, two apple trees, uh, from his bedroom. And uh, so I'm, I'm kind of looking out while she's showing me some boring furniture and this kind of thing. And um, eventually she says, do you know that Isaac Newton died the day before, no, sorry, Galileo died the day before Isaac Newton was born. What would a Buddhist make of that? <laughs> and it did get my attention, I must say. Uh, and I'm thinking, so what have we got here? We've got a theory of reincarnation, which is that all geniuses are actually the same soul, that through history, perhaps starting with Moses, you have the soul from that genius passes into a baby, you know, the day afterwards, and moves along. And so you've got Galileo's soul turning into Isaac Newton. And it's a great thought, isn't it? Uh, it's only when I did a bit of research I discovered it was complete bullshit uh, <laughs> that actually Newton was born months after Galileo died. So I suppose maybe, <laughs> maybe we think that souls hang around a while, you know, waiting for the appropriate host and then maybe. So maybe it's, it's, it is true. But, um, but there's Newton, um, isolated for a year at, in this farm. So what does he do to pass the time in, in uh, self-isolation? He invents calculus. He bores a little hole in the shutter on his window, so a single beam of light will pass through, and then he puts a prism up and sees how the light breaks up into all the colours. You remember the Roy G. Biv, isn't it? Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. Um, so he's studying the properties of light, having wasted his time with a bit of calculus, um, and he's looking at his trees. And comes down the apple, theory of gravity. So I reckon that was a pretty good year for, for uh, Isaac Newton. He called it his Annus Mirabilis. Do you remember the Queen a while ago talked about her Annus Horribilis, which has been turned into some terrible jokes. Um, but Isaac had an Annus Mirabilis, and uh, he then went back to Cambridge in 67, and two years later he was made a professor. So it was a very productive year when he was in self-isolation. And I'm going to ask everybody uh, later on, the panel and you, to recommend 
what to do during self-isolation. I want you to think about a few books that you would really want other people to read that will pass the time during self-isolation and or Netflix shows or any, anything of that kind that you can, you can do at home. So I noticed that uh, in Italy, uh, Pornhub has made its properties free during the period of the uh, uh, isolation. So the, the Italians... <laughs> Uh, Italians are occupied, uh, uh, so that's already covered, um, but I'd like you to think about recommendations and we'll, we'll sort of collect some recommendations later on, okay? Um, so we come to current days and we find a possibility, um, and again I'm sticking with literature here, I was delighted to, to receive a note from the ABC to tell me that HG and Roy are going to be back on the radio. And Roy says, with the world spinning out of control, blighted by climate change, economic train wrecks, incompetent governance, pestilence, species extinctions and intolerance, it's a great opportunity for HG and myself to steady the ship by applying the slide rule of common sense to the simple passion that unites the world, rugby league. And HG says, Roy and I are humbled by this opportunity to put our shoulders to the rugby league ambition of bringing world peace and harmony through violence and chaos. <laughs> he says, I had tears in my eyes when the light turned green for two bludgers with bugger all to offer to be part of something we can all be part of. Uh, so that's one thing we can be doing is, is listening to HG and Roy. So that brings us up to date on literature. Uh, now, I want to show you something. We'll get a little bit more serious now. I want to show you a video, and, and I think it's a great example of leadership. And then I, I want, while we're showing this, I'm, I want the panel to come up and perhaps to give us their comments on this. And also, I'd be very interested to get your reaction to this. Is this a model of what some other people should be doing? So can we have a look at that video? Hey there, it's just producer Kel dropping into your feed to let you know that at this particular point in the panel, they played a YouTube video where Jacinta Ardern gets two experts together and covers a whole lot of really important questions around COVID-19. This is what the panel then continues to talk about. Unfortunately, we couldn't lift the audio from that video for copyright purposes, but we have included a link to it in the show notes. So please go there and you'll be able to see what they were talking about. There's a lot more of that, and I commend it to you uh, to, to have a look later. I didn't want to take up too much time with that. I was more interested in, in that as a, uh, to, to do that as a piece of public policy, uh, and I was going to show you Donald Trump's speech to the nation, oh, and then I thought, yeah, nah. <laughs> uh, we, can, we can discuss that. Um, so... Uh, I'm wanting now to hear some reaction to that from, from our panellists, but also to, to talk now about the various implications of this. I mean, it is, of, co of course this is a tragedy, but it is also a fascinating sociological study, and that's what we as authors and readers are interested in. That's why we read novels and we read non-fiction. We want to understand human beings better. This is a way of understanding human beings better in watching them and how they're behaving in, in a crisis. And of course, 
some people consider that politicians are human beings. Um, and I don't know about whether Kerry holds that view about politicians, but I'd be interested in your analysis of the current sort of way that the politicians are reacting to this crisis. Well, I think politicians are uh, all too human. Uh, I was sitting there um, listening and uh, trying to imagine uh, Scott Morrison explaining what his dangly bits need to attach to <laughs> in, in order to spread his influence. But uh, you, mentioned, you mentioned leadership before, and you're absolutely right. I mean, leadership is going to be uh, utterly crucial when you contemplate where this is heading. And amongst all of the confusion, there was clarity. Oh, absolutely. And you compare that with what we've witnessed in the past week. Uh, and there are so many contradictions going on. And I, I think um, the fundamental for people at a time like this in leadership is trust. Uh, you would have thought we need to feel a trust in government, we need to feel a trust in our leaders. So many bits going on. Um, uh, I, I'll give you an example of, of where the mind goes as you try to put cynicism to one side and trust your leaders in what they're telling us. The, uh, the Australian Grand Prix, I was in Melbourne uh, for a thing on Thursday night, uh, arrived in my motel on the edge of the Albert Park racetrack and, uh, and there was this swarm of angry bees I could hear buzzing around the circuit. Uh, you felt that they were circling around the motel. Uh, and so that was Thursday night and what was going on in the, in the, in the foreground of that was um, the discussion about whether the Grand Prix would proceed. And I'd been intrigued even before I got to Melbourne because uh, I was reading that, um, uh, that South Korea was, uh, that the virus was spreading in South Korea at an alarming rate and also in Italy. And that the, that the numbers were roughly equivalent. And we announced as a government that, that, uh, that we were going to ban travel from South Korea and we were going to put Italy on notice. And uh, this was just at the time that the uh, Grand Prix teams uh, were arriving in Australia or about to arrive in Australia, many of whom were Italian and coming from Italy. And of course, uh, when you consider what the impact uh, of that Grand Prix has economically on Victoria and the big case that's been built up over years as to why they must have it because it's vital to Victoria's economy, uh, the little thought did start to creep into my mind that perhaps uh, this was not um, uh, that, that this was not a kind of health judgment, but a political judgment, uh, whether it came from Victoria, whether it came from, from Canberra, that the Grand Prix must go on. And yet by the Friday morning, I was woken to the buzz of the early cars going around, but within 20 minutes it had gone to silence and suddenly we hear that the Grand Prix... It was because a, a McLaren team member had come down with the virus and suddenly all the teams are confined to the hotel. So that nasty suspicion, it could have been utterly innocent, but the nasty suspicion does go through your mind. And so seeds of doubt get sown. And then you see Scott Morrison on Friday. I mean, part of, they're trying to explain on the way, they're having the big announcement about, and I'm not trying to sound cynical here as I say it, because I want to trust them too. Um, and so the announcement is, um, we, we strongly urge all events of over 500 people not to go ahead. Uh, but, says Scott, 
um, this might be my last chance to see the Sharkies yeah. play. So, so I'm going to go and see them on Sunday. Uh, but this will take place, but the band will come on, we hope, from Monday. No explanation as to why. Uh, so we're left to ponder that. And then at the same time, what's going on on the side is we suddenly learn that Peter Dutton said that got the virus, and he's been in close contact not only with various White House people, including Ivanka, uh, but, uh, but he's been in contact with our own cabinet. But mysteriously, none of our cabinet members need to be tested, and Scott certainly doesn't need to be tested. But uh, Dutton's been tested, and he's immediately gone into quarantine. Uh, Ivanka, as soon as she hears that she's, she might have picked this up herself from Dutton, she puts herself in isolation. But, but Scott doesn't think that's necessary for him. It's not necessary for him to be tested. So, and, and then you see, you see the reliance on, uh, on the chief health officer uh, who was about to uh, become the head of a department appointed by the Morrison government. This is an age where the independence of the public service has been seriously damaged. It's eroded. It's been eroding ever since those senior public servants lost their permanency and are now being, having to re-sign every five years, and many of them aren't. And in fact, five of them were sacked late last year by Scott Morrison at the same time as he was sending a message to all public servants, we're the government, we decide things, you just do what we say. So put that together with all of the elements of mistrust that have built up over time amongst most, if not all of us. Uh, and this is, not a good, this is not a good framework for us to be trying to deal with a virus that we're told could spread to billions. And if you say a billion and you take even 1% of that billion as facing death, what is that, you know? And, and, and then the numbers just start to boggle you. There, there was a, and, and of course, in the absence of reliable information, rumors flourish. So once Scott Morrison announced that he wasn't going to go to the football after all, the next start of bunch of rumours as to why he had postponed the ban until Monday was that Hillsong Church is having a huge event today. Did he uh, say that? He hasn't said that. Oh. That is going around. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Um, we have no way of knowing that that, that is the rumour, that actually... It wasn't the football that caused him to delay it. It was that he needed to go to the Hillsong event on Sunday. And then once they've got their praying out of the way, uh, then we can all become safer. Uh, now, is it true? I don't know. I'm waiting to hope that but some reliable point, journalists will check it. That is the point. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's what you see in the literature about the plague, is that the panic is spread by rumour. Of course, back then in, in the 1660s, there were news sheets, but they were just uh, spreading the rumours far worse. That was the equivalent of Twitter, I suppose, at the time. Uh, but because we are no longer seemingly able to trust our leaders, we believe pretty much anything. Uh, so I'm interested to now uh, talk to Alexandra Joel, who, apart from being uh, the author of Rosetta and The Paris Model, is also a psychologist. And I've asked her if she would look at some of the, some explanations for the way we've been behaving. I mean, what's this panic buying all about? Thank you, David. Um, as David mentioned, I am now writing novels on quite a different theme. And as I was looking at my notes, my notes said, Jackie Kennedy, Hall of Mirrors, 1961, wore a rhinestone-studded white satin gown with embroidered bod bodice by Givenchy with a diamond tiara and 
President de Gaulle said, Madame, you look like a Watteau. I then realised I was in the wrong career <laughs> and will now revert to my earlier career as a psychotherapist. Um, just to make some comments first, I think you invited us to in terms of that clip. It's a fascinating difference in style. I'm assuming that most of you are familiar with the um, address given by Trump to the nation. Now, it's a great contrast because Trump set himself up as an authority. He misspoke, to put it generously, on a number of occasions. He had earlier said that it's fine to have coronavirus and go to work because you could get really well that way. He made several very significant errors in the address that he gave to the nation. Let us contrast this with Jacinda Ardern. Jacinda Ardern did not set herself up as the expert. What she did was a very intelligent identification with the populace. In other words, what she was communicating is, I'm just like you and I'm not an expert, so she's not pretending as Trump was. She's saying, in this regard, although I am a leader, I am also an ordinary citizen and I need to go to these experts for advice. And that, I think, allowed people to identify with her immediately as one of us. It also allowed experts to come in and actually give this the information that we needed to hear. I also found it fascinating that it was three women. And um, although it is a stereotype, traditionally going right back to the days of the plague in which David described, it was the nuns within the convents who cared for people and it has traditionally been women who have carried out the role as nurses or indeed as mothers, as carers. And so rather than, again, being an aggressive and frightening laying down of a message from on high, it, the language that was used was not scientific, never seen dangly bits in a science journal, <laughs> but something that we could all relate to and understand. So I would give it top marks as a brilliant means of communication that, one, we can all identify with, two, we are not frightened by, and three, we hear, believe and understand. That's, that's me on that. Um, shall I now progress to toilet paper, yes. David? <laughs> As we all have to. <laughs> Did you bring some? Um, okay, I'm now going to um, just do a little run through. In a way, I'll, I'll, I'll start at the results <laughs> and move back, in fact, so the to line. the... <laughs> I've got to make this a pun-free zone. I will never get through this. Um, okay. Um, loss arousal. We are cued as human beings to loss arousal. Um, at 
the absolutely fundamental level that is connected with an absence of food. But as we've evolved, that absence of food attaches itself, that fear, to other areas of life which we may regard as essential, but often, in fact, they refer to non-essential items or easily acquired items. What happens with loss arousal is a fear response, goes right to the primitive part of our brain, the amygdala, our pupils dilate, our heartbeat starts to kick in. And what we get from loss arousal is this condition called loss aversion. So many, many psychologists have tested this for a long, long, long time. It was first written about um, in the 19th century. Sigmund Freud wrote a work on it. And the curious thing is that it is much more important to us if we lose $5 than if we're given $5. So what happens with loss aversion? When we look at the great toilet paper run, (laughs) (laughs) um, we see this commodity to which we have become accustomed. And it works in the same way loss aversion is... You know how magazines give you free trial periods? The reason they give you the free trial period is because when it's taken away from you, you really miss it because you've become habituated to it and it has become part of your status quo. And if your status quo as a human being is threatened, then you begin to worry and you become become fearful. Now, this feeds them into a cascade of effects because there is also something called the trophy effect. So when somebody is walking down the aisle and they have their trolley and it is full, full, overflowing with toilet papers, they feel really good. (laughs) I'm a winner. I'm a winner. I'm better than all those dopes that turned up at Coles at the wrong time. I I got exactly right and I've got my trophy. So it's almost like a kind of cargo cult and I'm beginning to think that people will show you their new room and they'll go, look, this is my new fabulous grade four telly. And here is my Brett Whiteley painting. And look at my pile of toilet paper. (laughs) I mean, how good am I? So we then go from the trophy effect to this situation of control. So all human beings, and particularly those in the developed world, like to feel they have a sense of control. So... In earlier cultures, very complicated rituals were constructed in order to feel they had a sense of control. We have vested that in a whole range of experts and a whole range of behaviours because we like to believe science can cure everything and in the first world, 
We have a fabulous hospital system, a terrific health system, and all problems can be resolved. It is very terrifying for us to come up against that primitive part of ourselves that says there is no landing net. We don't know how many people will be infected. We don't really know who will be infected and we don't know how many will die. And this cascade is exaggerated tremendously when we get so many different pieces of conflicting information. Now, we say that about everything. It's just like diet. It's all, you know, should we drink coffee? Shouldn't we drink coffee? Should we drink red wine? Shouldn't we drink red? Obviously, if you're in Venice, they feel you should drink red wine. (laughs) So, look, just to rush through this, um, when WHO says the death rate is 3.9 and Korea, which, who has tested more widely than any other nation says it's 0.9, which one do you go with? We don't know. And when a leader, the so-called leader of the free world, says, yeah, it's fine, turn up at work with coronavirus, and then you hear an expert saying, whatever you do, self-isolate, who do we believe? So... There becomes, again, you know, the next cascade is this existential crisis because everybody in the 21st century is losing faith in institutions. Mm. Now, it used to be with the plague that uh, the priest would simply say, well, it's God's will. You know, you've all sinned and that is why the plague has come. And dreadful as that is, Humans like reason and certainty. And that, even though a negative, is more comforting than people saying, we don't know where it originated. We don't know where ground zero patient is. We don't know how long it will run for and we don't know how lethal it is. So you can imagine how much fear arousal is going to, um, going to come out of that. I thought it'd be interesting at this stage to, to talk to Janie Jordan. Janie's other expertise, apart from being a great organiser, is analysing what to do in a crisis and how well it's been handled so far. So let's hear about that. The first thing I want to come to um, is just a quick comment on Jacinda. When she led New Zealand through the, which is the anniversary, I think this weekend or today, um, of the Christchurch massacre, we all I mean, we all went, oh, you know, we could have faith in her. She is of the people, speaks for the people. She's one of them. So there is no doubt that a crisis is a defining moment for a leader. That's it. So when I'm working with leaders and preparing them, um, I always, because we default to type, and, you know, and Alexandra's been talking a lot about type. And what do I mean by that? Well, look at the leaders around the world now. Trump defaulting to type. His type is on display. Let's look at, at Morrison. His type is on display. Look at Jacinda. Her type is on display. Because, you know, as Alexandra said, that bit of our brain disappears. And so unless you are inoculated and you've had a lot of training in crisis management and 
how to communicate in a crisis, you will default to type. And that will be in your long-term memory. And potentially going back to a horrible experience you had as a four-year-old, and you can't remember what to do. A crisis is a, when your values are on display. I'm just going to make it very personal for us as an organisation. Because when I was talking with my committee and we first started to look at what was going on, and I'm going, we have to do this, this, and this. I've looked at who guidelines are going to have to do this. And they said to me, it's all a big panic. It's all, no, we're not doing that. So you've got to step up to your values. And we, as this Stone Literary Festival, have, we know you love us. You come to us. We have to respond to that love. We love you too. We put on intimate events. You come to us because you can speak to the authors. So what do we have to live out as our values? So that's the sort of discussions we've been having behind the scenes. Live out your values. And we've, we're seeing values on display. We might not like them, but our leaders are showing their values, their type, and they're defaulting to that. So courage is important in a crisis. We've seen courage in bucket falls from Jacinda Ahern, wearing back to Christchurch massacre. Look at the symbols. Because in a crisis, it is the symbols. It's the nonverbal communication. 95% of our communication in a crisis is nonverbal. So we react to impressions. We react to the tone of voice. We react to the pupils of the eyes. And in the days of the you know, social media, when we can look at the eyeballs, we can zoom in on our smartphones and go, can we believe them? That's our subconscious coming through. So courage is important. You've got to stick to it. If you go, I, the buck stops with me, and it has for this festival. I've got a stunning, fabulous committee. But as one of the committee said, you're the boss. It's, you have to have courage to actually lead. Jacinda Ahern is showing that in bucket, bucket loads. So values are very, very important when you're thinking about it. The other thing is you take responsibility and act fast. Well, who has taken responsibility and acted fast on a world level? Seriously, who has? I think New Zealand, I, I wanted to move there. I still think I want to move there, really. You know, I can trust Jacinda. I can trust her. She doesn't, she's a fabulous communicator, a fabulous leader in a crisis. I could go on and on, David, but I won't. So can I, can I, just, I, can I just come in there on, on Jacinda? Look, uh, I would like to believe that everything we see about Jacinda is real. Yeah, I and would le And let's hope it is. Yes. Jacinda is also a politician. Yes. Jacinda also has advisors. Yes. Who are advising her, particularly with an election coming up where yeah. just a couple of months ago there was... Um, strong speculation that she may well lose that election. She will be conscious of her impact through those things as well. And we shouldn't be blind to it, even with the people that we feel we have cause to respect. Uh, and, and, and believe me, uh, while Scott Morrison, having suffered the damage that he suffered after the fires, um, will be taking advice by the minute, because I don't think Scott Morrison is a natural leader. And I'm not isolating him from that. I think that's been true of a number of them. They have become so used relying on media, not just media advisors, on image advisors, uh, on marketing, 
And it would not surprise me if, uh, and yet, you know, we saw in Morrison with his line about um, uh, about uh, uh, the, the footy, um, with uh, with um, the the trip to Hawaii, he was trying to justify that by saying my kids wanted to go, um, and and having been hit to leg by his reactions to the fire, he will have been taking advice by the minute about how, how, what, would, what should he be doing to demonstrate to people that he's a leader. Leaders don't have to do that. No, absolutely But that, right. is, that is the modern world of so-called democratic politics, including to a degree, I think, Jacinda. You always have to take, and context is everything in a crisis, because we, I mean, a crisis is defined by the last big thing. And we heard David giving us a literary analysis of the last big thing, and they've been the plagues over the ages. So we are informed, rightly or wrongly, by the last big thing that happened. So You know what the last big thing that happened was? We had a pandemic in 2009. Yes. The swine flu pandemic. Yes. Where the estimate is that somewhere between 150,000 and 575,000 people around the world died. And we've forgotten about it. Mm. I mean, I've just, I did a bit of a test over the last 24 hours, having done my heavy Wikipedia uh, research. And, and in Australia, there were 37,000 documented cases and, the, according to the health department, 190 deaths in 2009. And we've forgotten about it. And I, I would think it would be a fascinating study to go back and look at how that was handled and how this is handled. And it may well be we are simply a more anxious society even in the last 10 years than we were then. Absolutely. about it. Yeah. Because Can we've I... been changing Prime Minister every 12 years, yeah. uh, 12 months since then. Just one thing I'm going to say, is, and then I'll, Alex, Alexandra, I like to give people a way of thinking about things. So you've got to, as a leader, you have to immediately think about, yes, the last big thing. Therefore, we're, and the context of where we are right now is pick the panic. Pick the panic. Who is going to panic? What are they going to panic about? Where are they going to panic? What will trigger? Because it's a triggering, there always has to be a triggering event for a crisis. What is going to trigger them into panic? And how are you going to manage that? So it is a minute by minute in that sense. But it's about picking and managing the panic. And the last thing I want to say to anybody who's making a decision at whatever level, for the communication, if you make a decision, please, please stop and go, we've made a decision, who else needs to know? That step is often forgotten. Stop. When you make, even if it's just a personal decision at home, who else needs to know? And when do they need to know? How do they need? What channels are we going to use? It is a phone call. Am I calling my sister? Am I putting it on social media? What is the most reliable, trusted channel? So think through, I think, and I'm going to shut up and my son is looking at me smiling, um, is so pick the panic, but your six best friends in a crisis, as we journalists know, you might have to help me out here if I remember them, what happened? The W, five W's and how? Yeah, I'd I, I say this to my students. Who did what, where, when, why, and what next? They're the, they're, the, they're the W's that journalists need to tell people, and that's what we need to know in this case. I, I, it's interesting your remark about pick the panic, because uh, I'm thinking Donald Trump has lived and thrived by creating panics. 
And that notion of creating a panic goes back, well, it probably goes back further than this, but, uh, but in the 1930s, the Nazis created panic in the streets of Berlin about the Jews. Then in, in the last four years, Donald Trump has been creating panic about the Mexicans. Now he's got a panic that is nothing to do with his control. It's gone beyond him, but we've, in a sense, become addicted to panic and, uh, and, and we don't have politicians with the qualities to, to deal with it. Trump says, oh, here's a panic, but don't worry, trust me, I will fix it. Now it's apparent that he can't. And Boris Johnson, of course, yeah. was doing the same thing, those dreadful Europeans, you know, let's, let's worry about Polish people coming and taking our jobs. Um, he created that panic. Now he's totally out of control because there's a panic come from, from outside his, his, his ken that, that he can't control. It's, it's the, it's the, the politicians are being burned by their own fire, which is a, a, a depressing thought for the next few years. Um, I'll, I'll go to questions later. I just want to give Richard a chance to, to talk uh, for a little bit. Um, tell us about what's going on. Panic in the streets of Scone? What are your, what are your patients uh, <laughs> saying to you? Uh, what, what are you experiencing as a GP? Well, I think after today there may be panic in the streets of Scone. <laughs> <laughs> Up until now, I think it's been, as you said before, a fairly uh, blasé attitude. People thinking, oh, this is an overreaction. Um, and, and to be fair, Kerry, I think the, the public health authorities and uh, uh, some of the government departments have been aware of this sort of potential to happen. Yes. Now, we've had yeah. these cases over the years, yeah. going back to uh, history. But um, uh, and even with the, um, the, the coronavirus, this is not the first coronavirus we've had to deal with. The yeah. common cold is caused by a coronavirus, there was the MERS outbreak in uh, um, the Middle East and we had uh, the SARS thing back in 2002. So we've known for the potential for this virus to come along with its dangly bits. <laughs> and I guess, um, and I think the toilet paper thing, it's, it's interesting because people focus on a particular thing. I mean, we were thinking, why weren't the lentils and flour going? But, uh, <laughs> but uh, the, um, the toilet paper seemed to grab people's attention. Um, so... And I've been, even yesterday, I had a number of people saying to me, you know, this is not as bad as, you know, all this hype's going on, is it? And it comes a little bit back to, uh, you know, these major uh, uh, debates we've had over uh, recent times, you know, climate change and whatever. And it's a bit about, you know, let's not scare the children, you know. We have to have a level of panic, but let's keep that under control. And I think that's been a little bit of an attitude of, of people. We don't want to, you know, actually look at what's happening. We talk about a 3.7% uh, death rate down to a 1%, down to a 0.5%, uh, even down to a, 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 sorry, down to a, a 1 or a 0.5 or a 0.1%. But if 20% of us potentially are going to get this disease, could be higher, could be 50%, um, that's still a lot of, um, uh, a lot of uh, morbidity and uh, mortality to look after. So this is a significant crisis and the share market obviously... Uh, has been watching that as well. To talk about the political response, you've talked about that. And uh, that does come back, I guess, to uh, leadership. And at the moment, um, people are watching it evolve. And I think, luckily, it's this weekend this literary festival's on because it was next weekend. I don't think, I think this week is going to be a critical week in the, mm. in the control. And I guess um, people uh, realise that, you know, a few of us will get sick, a few of us will die, and that's all very okay on an individual level. But from the health system's point of view, it runs at capacity most of the time. There's 2,000 ventilated intensive care beds in Australia. 
I haven't been able to find their occupancy rate, but I'm guessing, and I don't, don't quote me because I don't know for a fact, I'm happy to be told, I think it would be around 80%, maybe a bit less, maybe a bit more, depending on the time. So that leaves another two or 300 beds that are available for a crisis where we could have thousands and thousands of people requiring um, ventilation. So I don't want to scare you, but there will be panic on the streets tomorrow. Um, Richard, isn't so it also true that, that, uh, that I read that, you, that they say that there is a, that in the health system that, that there is a capacity to actually double from 2,000 to 4,000 beds, but then they've also got to find another 2,000 ventilators, which um, will come from overseas. Well, the ventilators are not, not such a problem because uh, most theatres have ventilators. Uh, in Scone, for instance, if you need a ventilator, we take it from theatre down to our emergency department. So we have one in the, uh, our emergency department. We have maybe two that we could use. So we can, we can triple our capacity if necessary, mm. and that would be nationwide. But then you need the staff to run them. So you mm. need uh, nurses and doctors who can actually ventilate patients. It's a, a skill that uh, uh, is a special skill. So it doesn't, and that's the other issue. If 20% of the population is unwell, you soon run out of, um, and fr especially frontline staff. Mm. So the, the whole emphasis at the moment now is basically containment. And what we're trying to do is spread the bump out. You've seen with China who used draconian uh, measures to get their bump down. Uh, we saw what happened in Italy where it's still rising now, mm. Spain and other countries where there was basically inaction and nothing done. In Australia, we've recognised it. We're hoping to keep on the uh, Japanese and uh, uh, there's another country I've got a little graph there somewhere, but uh, keeping the curve here instead of here at the moment. This is new cases per day notificate, mm. notified. And Italy's going like this, Spain's going like this, England is probably a little bit less. Uh, China has gone up and is now dropping down. Um, uh, so the curve is what we're after to yeah. get that peak. Yeah. At the moment, Italy's like this, so their health system's overwhelmed. Uh, they're running out of oxygen, they're running out of staff, they're running out of whatever. Um, Japan has been able to maintain it a little bit more controlled, and that's what we're trying to do, push that hump further down. Mm. Um, we'll still all get, well, most of us will get uh, at some stage until there's a immunisation, which is like 12 to 18 months away. But, yeah, to go back, to, I mean, as we've talked about the leadership with Trump and, and now maybe coming on board, maybe um, Scott Morrison's coming on board, but it's sort of... And so to come back to uh, the reaction in Scone, so up to last night, a bit of blasé, you know, I don't really know what's going in here. I think uh, all the stuff we've talked about, the hand-washing, the isolation, uh, it is containable, but we do have to do something. Okay. Oh, just a couple of comments. Um, if you look back at the great flu epidemic after World War One, it's fascinating two case studies in America between St. Louis and Philadelphia. Mm. So in one city in St. Louis, they said, let us show the population that we are not afraid. And they all linked hands and thousands of people marched down the front, the main street of St. Louis. In Philadelphia... They were told, stay home, don't go out, don't see anyone, self-isolate. So, so what happened in the first instance was in St. Louis, as you would not be surprised to know, there was this giant spike and then it went down. In St. Louis, it was a very slow increase over a longer period of time, but the number of deaths was far less which is a really interesting 
example of two different forms of crisis management. But just to go on to this matter which Kerry brought up about the swine flu, the biggest driver of human beings is fear. There is an old newspaper saying, which all these journalists will know, which is, if it bleeds, it leads. This has now been translated into social media into clickbait. So you get the maximum number of clicks if you have a terrifying and fearful subject. That is a large part of the reason why I would hypothesise that we we are hearing so much about coronavirus now compared to the swine flu then. And it's fascinating to look at the difference in bushfires um, between the Black Saturday bushfires, which happened in 2009, and our recent terrible bushfires. Now, our recent bushfires, 34 people died. Does anyone know how many people died in 2009? 190. Exactly. But the difference is the fear factor that has driven social media and the high clickbait level on that. The Telegraph actually used in its headline the word plague the other day. Did they? Yeah, they did. That is going to incite panic. And my last thing that I'd just like to comment on is something that David brought back, which is control. So we are all looking for some sort of control. Um, You build a wall, you will have control. What was the brilliant slogan that Dominic Cummins, the Svengali behind Brexit, thought up? Take back control. Yes. It's an illusion, but psychologically highly effective. And I think Joe Biden will exploit this successfully against Trump. Uh, okay, now let us uh, hear from you. If you have any questions or if you want to suggest things to do while you self-isolate, uh, because I don't know if Pornhub will extend its services to Australia. Um, so, would you like to go ahead? Uh, this is a question really to oh, Janie. We've all been here together. And I'm sure most of us have thought, what if one of us has coronavirus? So Janie, as a, you know, as a person who's been managing the situation through the festival, what do you have to say to all of us? If one of us finds out we do have it, which I think is not a particularly easy thing to even find out, certainly with locals, yes? If uh, I come no. in with symptoms, can I get tested straight away, for instance? No. To, to conf- okay. At the moment, we're only testing people who sort of come into a category, which means you've been in contact with a known person with coronavirus or you've come from a high-risk area. Uh, and there, are still, there are still people, I think I saw the t- 14 people who have coronavirus and they don't know the source. Yes, so that's part of the source. And there is, a, there is even a um, faecal-oral route. We're talking about back to the toilet paper, but um, uh, a person has been secreting the virus. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's spreading, uh, is still being understood. But... Um, so picking... It's a very topical question, a responsible question, and in fact, Richard and I were talking about that before the panel. We have used email as our formal method of communication, and given we've set that up, that expectation is that we would communicate to you immediately, those of you who we have an email. We will rely on you to inform us. So the responsibility is two-way, and we live in a world of two-way communication. 
thanks or not to social media. Their expectations of incremental communication and being involved in that is very is, is what we have to prepare for in crisis management. We will also, I mean, obviously, we're in close contact with the Upper Hunter Shire Council, Steve McDonald, because he gets um, the general manager of the Upper Hunter Shire Council, gets obviously alerts immediately that will trigger certain things. And hopefully he will remember that when he makes a decision, he has to communicate it, um, and I will find out. So we have thought through and we are following, as we have for the whole festival, the WHO guidelines. And, and so there's some protocols we've set up from a communication perspective. So it will be your responsibility to inform us and it will be our responsibility to get the information back to you and obviously inform our local health people. And as it's an evolving situation and each day there's yeah. more bulletins coming about what to do, I think if anybody has symptoms of a flu-like illness or a reasonably uh, a cold, but it, this, this disease is affecting the lungs sort of primarily, but if you have a flu-like illness, the sensible thing is to self-isolate and then contact a medical professional, be it the hospital or your local practice, for advice. And we're encouraging people not to attend the hospital, not to attend practices, uh, because obviously that could easily overwhelm the whole system, but to uh, talk to someone, get some advice. Uh, there will be obviously more testing as it becomes available. I mean, some populations, South Korea, I think one of them is testing almost everybody. Um, but there's all these issues about the incubation period. You know, you may be too early to be positive in the test. Um, we're still working out how, uh, how long you're actually infected for. <coughs> I think it's uh, sort of five to uh, 10 days, which is why the two-week period is important. And uh, I think the idea is, going back to not panicking, um, is just make some arrangements. If you're self-isolated, we're going to talk about what you can do. But just remember uh, limita limiting your access to the baby boomer remover <laughs> um, cohort, so um, nursing homes and, uh, you know, elderly relatives and... Uh, Nurse, and nursing people. homes are mostly pre-baby boom, if I could make them... <laughs> That's <more> true. <laughs> But it's all right then. <laughs> <laughs> I think that attitude is starting to creep in, though. We are, we are heading that way. But unfortunately, the mortality is a linear line, basically, on your age, really, just because older people have more comorbidities and have more sort of <laughs> health issues that makes them more susceptible to uh, what's going on. But remember, behind the mortality is the huge morbidity of people. Uh, looking at figures last night, something like 16 to 20% of people who get coronavirus may need hospitalisation, something like 6% uh, of them of those may need ventilation, and then of course some of those will die. So um, uh, it's, it's like any disease, there's a heap of us will get it who'll be fairly mild illness, you know, sniffly nose or a cough for a bit, get over it. Younger people and um, babies seem to be fairly resistant at this stage. Um, so it's really just thinking about who you're talking to, keeping a metre or two away, you're probably not going to infect someone, so all that sort of stuff, but we've heard that. Uh, well, uh, just, 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 just quickly, I'd, I just thought you'd all be interested to hear this. This is from Rob Drew, one of Australia's great authors. Uh, dear all, I've just heard that the coronavirus is going to cause a massive shortage of books, <laughs> which will be essential when we're all stuck at home, so it's vital that everyone rush out and start panic buying novels. Yes! <laughs> okay, so we, we have time for... But two or three more questions, but try to well, keep yeah. them brief. If, but if I, I, wa I want to favour this side because we've kind of had our backs to you, so I'm, I'm going to go over here first. Yeah. Oh, 
Richard, can you just give us a perspective on this disease in relation to flu and just what are the numbers around flu annually and how many old people die of flu every year? And can we just get a little bit of perspective and context as to, you know, I know this is an evolving situation and that coronavirus, this one is novel, but there seems to have been very little comparison between the diseases we already know about and the numbers that are afflicted by those and the number of people who die from those in comparison to this disease. So, you know, we have a very good health system here and we have good record keeping of what those numbers are. Do you have a sense of how this compares? Oh, well, um, the flu, of course, has been in our background for a long time. We talked about the uh, last pan-epidemic, which was the H1N1 swine flu. Um, but the flu virus has been in our systems for a long time. So, and, and most of us um, uh, have had contact with it. Uh, the, the current, the, I, mean, I haven't been up to date, but my last thinking was that about every 10 to 15 years, you have a major shift in the, the viral coding, so our bodies aren't as aware. So uh, that's when we have these little peaks, and they, they're coming all the time. As you know from the media, some years are worse than others. There's always this worry about a new novel flu virus. So yes, the flu virus is in the background, and we're certainly suggesting everybody has their flu uh, immunisation as soon as they possible, especially the susceptible groups. Um, so that's always in the background, and uh, I can't give you the exact numbers, but certainly nine hundred, nine hundred. Oh, from the from last the uh, from flu, or was that the H one N? No, no, just from uh, flu. The SARS was the same about nine hundred. So nine hundred. So I guess that's a significant thing. But our health system is set up for about that number, whether it be six hundred one year thousand the next year and little bumps do put a little bit of pressure on the system the the issue with this virus is because it's a novel virus for the human uh, immune system that we're all susceptible to it so it's basically in two years time it'll be a different conversation because coronavirus will just be part of the background uh, as the SARS viruses and other ones at the moment where maybe there'll be an immunization but it will just come part of the, the herd humini- uh, uh, immunity but at the moment, because none of us have had this particular virus, uh, that's, that's the issue with overwhelming the health system. So I agree that flu is very important. You do need to have your flu vaccine. You need to do the normal stuff, washing your hands. That's all good for the flu as well, of course. Okay. We, we have time for just one more question, and I'll take it from over here. The lady, yes, she's got the mic. Yeah, look, mine's more a comment. I was in China in yes. 2009, so I went through the whole epidemic thing that was going on over there, the being sprayed in planes, the temperature checks going in and out of airports all the time. The main thing that I would say to everybody here is control what you can control. And it's what the panel has said. You can control what you, you, know, what you do with your hygiene. You can, tr- can control what events you go to. But that gives you far more, um, you know, control within yourself. You feel better if you can control what you can control. Don't leave it up to other people. Look after it yourself. Wash your hands. Do the right thing and you'll get through it. That's the main message I'd give everyone from having gone through that once. I think that's a terrific ending. And so remember, stay home and invent a new form of calculus. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Please thank our panel. If you enjoyed that session from the Scone Literary Festival, then head on over to our website, www.rightsforwomen.com, 
forward slash rights for festivals. That's where you'll be able to find all of the episodes from all of the festivals that we recorded. There will be many more episodes of the Scone Literary Festival yet to come over the next couple of weeks, so do keep your eye out in the feed and make sure you subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and wherever you get your pods. You can find out more about the Scone Literary Festival at www.sconewritersfestival.com.au. Please like, share, you know, do all the communal things, tell people about us. Until the next episode, keep reading, thinking and questioning. This podcast was produced and edited by Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting. Podcasts for a positive world.